If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we'll get there uh, in a few minutes, but just have yourself ready there, and there's going to be some passages of Scripture that uh, we will be looking at just from the first few chapters of the book of Acts. But before we get started there, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning that we can study your word together. And so please open up our ears to hear with ears of faith. Let life and light come in. And may we be a church that delights, delights and loves to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to others. And we ask it in our Savior's name. Amen. On Tuesday evening, uh, I was about to run out to the store, and uh, the wind was blowing out there. And maybe you felt it, but it was a different kind of wind than what you might feel in the summertime. It was like a familiar voice uh, that I had not heard in a pretty good while, and it was the voice of fall. Did you hear it this week? Cooler air started rustling through the leaves. Uh, it was telling me that the season was getting ready to change. And you know how it is. It comes slowly at first. It comes in bursts. You get just a little bit of that new season. You feel it for a little while, and then eventually it settles in. And so we have a new season that is almost upon us. And many of you all are probably thinking, hallelujah, we're ready for a new season. And this is no word from the Lord. Uh, but it seems to me that we are at the beginning of a new kind of season here at CAS 2 for various reasons. It's a kind of rustling in the leaves. A bit of change is in the air, at least from my perspective, and it's a welcome wind. So I want to tell you what I've been thinking on, and it's an emphasis specifically that has been lacking somewhat because of my own failure to emphasize it. And it appears the Lord is going to begin to correct it because He is patient and He's wise in all His works. So I want to start by giving just a, a broad picture of who we are here at CAS and then zoom in a bit at the picture to see a little more clearly at that particular thing that needs to change somewhat. And so I want you to think of a camera and most of you all have cameras in your pockets, and most of those cameras will give a panoramic picture. You know how if you've ever tried to take that before, you're supposed to keep it very steady, and I can just never do a very good job of that. And so that takes a panoramic picture, and it gives you a good look at the landscape from a distant view. You can see everything all at once, but you take that picture and you, you, know, you tap it, and you can zoom in and look much more closely at something specific in that picture. So the panorama first. A lot of our signage here at the church, even our letterhead, has a statement on it. You'll see it right here. We teach, we pray, we serve, so all will know the love of Christ. And that's just an effort to try and make it clear to us and try to make it clear to other people who we are. Why is it that we're here? What have we been called to be? What have we been called to do? It's the basics teaching, praying, serving. It's just basic. And it's because that's what Christians have always done. They've always taught the Word of God. They've always prayed to God. They've always come together and served for the glory of God. And that's what we are here to do 
in South Buffalo. And the aim of those activities, we are hoping, will be used by God to make disciples who know the love of Christ. We want people to know Jesus. And I don't mean just know about Jesus, like you hear a rumor about something that you think might be true out there somewhere, but to know it personally and to know it powerfully in such a way that it changes your life. When you hear the gospel for the first time with believing ears, you'll never be the same again. That's what we want to have happen as people hear the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. And what happens when a person hears that message and first discovers the love of God? They become a worshiper of God. They start to worship Him. Praise to God for who He is. Praise to God for what He has done. That is the ultimate aim of all discipleship. The activities of teaching, praying, and serving that we do here are meant to engage people in the love of Christ so that it will result in worship. That's the response of a grateful heart for the undeserved good that he's poured out on a needy sinner. And so as a community, just again, big picture, as a community, our desire is to see the worship of God grow as we and others continually encounter the love of Christ, primarily through the basic activities of teaching, praying, and serving together. That's why we're here. That's the point of our existence when we're gathered here in this place and our purpose also when we scatter out into the neighborhood and do our various responsibilities and roles that we fulfill into the community. So your purpose when you walk out of this place really does not change. It just looks a little bit different. We do hope that worship continues to happen when you walk out of these doors. We do hope that you continue to engage in the love of Christ. You're just doing it out there in the hopes of making disciples in your sphere of influence. That's the panorama. That's the big picture. But I want to zoom in a bit at the close-up shot. And this is, so this is a community of disciples who are growing in love and the worship of God. But how specifically does a person become a disciple? Where does that process begin? And so it has to start somewhere. Otherwise, there won't be any other disciples that are being made. And if you've done any gardening, and I think a lot of you all probably have done some gardening over the course of the warm weather this year, you know that mature flowers and trees and shrubs, they do not just show up. Not the ones you want to keep anyway. But even the weeds start somewhere, don't they? They all start as seeds. So it is with discipleship. There is seed that is planted in a kind of soil that introduces a person to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so a Christian gardener, and it can be any Christian, we're not just talking about a pastor here, we're not just talking about somebody who is gifted as an evangelist, we're talking about any Christian who has the message of the gospel that he or she carries around with them in their hearts. Any Christian who is a gardener in a sense goes out there and sows seed given by God in hopes that something sprouts up. 
And the seed that God gives to his field hands, us, is the word of God. But in the case you think that's too general, maybe you think when I say the word of God, specifically the whole Bible, and the whole Bible is the word of God, but when I say the word of God in this instance, I'm talking about the gospel. The gospel. It's the message of Jesus Christ. The message that says who he is and what He has come in the world to do. That is the gospel. And so a church that wants to see disciples being made must be committed to evangelism. We need to be an evangelistic church. There are many people outside the walls of this place who do not know our Savior. There are many people in your life who do not know your Savior. And if we want disciples to be made in this place, we must be committed to going out there and bringing the message of Jesus to them. Going out into the field and sowing the seed of the gospel. God has given us the best news. The best news. And evangelism comes from the word evangel. And that's what it means. It means good news. But I wonder if we often see it that way. Do you think of the gospel of Jesus Christ as being the best news that a person can ever hear? And it's easy to say that sitting here on a Sunday morning. Well, of course, Pastor, it's the best news ever. But do we really think of it that way? If a man went into a coma this month, and did not wake up until mid-February, after the Bills win the Super Bowl. Okay? And you show up in his hospital room after you hear that he has awakened. Would you not be overly excited to tell that man that the Bills have won the Super Bowl? You would think to yourself, this is very, very good news. And I want him to know it. There are thousands of people in our community right now who are going about their business, they're loving their sin, living in sin, separated from a holy God, destined for an eternity in a very real hell that they truly do deserve just like we have deserved it too. But God, because He is full of mercy, has provided a way for those sinners to receive forgiveness. Wonderful, sweet forgiveness for their sins. He has provided the life and death of His own Son. And all they need to do is hear the message. Hear it. Just hear it with listening ears. Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. And we pray that God opens ears so that hearts can genuinely receive the message of salvation. And those who hear it, they see their sin, they see their Savior, 
They're not, they don't have to stay stuck in their sin. God has done everything for them. They do not need to do anything. That's what makes it good news. Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He's taken care of everything. All they need to do is look with believing eyes and call on God for mercy, and He readily gives it. And that's good news. And this is good news not just of temporal, you know, proportions like the Bills won in the Super Bowl. I know you just want it once, right? You just want it once, and you can forever say that you're a Super Bowl champion. But next year, somebody wins it, and they go about losing it again. But just once, that's all you want. What Jesus has done is of cosmic importance and eternal importance. This sends ripples into eternity. Do we really think that in eternity we're going to be sitting around talking about who won the Super Bowl and arguing who was the best team? Well, maybe we remember it. But I do not think that we're going to see it as the good news that so many here would. But the message of the gospel will only grow in our hearts as good news. And so if you were to take those two things right there, Bills win Super Bowl, Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. If you were left all to yourself, nobody else except you, and you thought on what would give you more joy, which is it? I shudder to think, in some ways, what some in their heart of hearts would want more. And if we really think that the Bills winning the Super Bowl is better news, we've got some really messed up hearts. So if I really believe that I have the best news on the planet, and it's always with me. Paul would say that he, we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay, these earthen pots. Man, what a treasure. God has entrusted that to us. Amazing. And if I believe that that is the best news on the planet, and my fellow man really needs it, needs it more than anything else, how? How can I keep it to myself? But I so often do. We have a biblical example in the book of Acts at the apostles and the early disciples of Jesus that they had to tell others about their Savior. They were compelled. They could not keep silent. They must speak about their resurrected Savior. It was inconceivable to them that they would stay silent, or that they would wait for sinners to come to them. That they would just pray in hopes that sinners would come. No, they had to go and speak to them themselves. The only option that they saw as being a viable option was where they went to those people. The first instance of this was at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This was 50 days after the Passover. So at about 50 days past the resurrection of Jesus, 
He has been raised from the dead. He stayed with his disciples for 40 days. They go into the upper room and they wait because Jesus says that power would come from on high. He would send his spirit to them. They're waiting. And the spirit of God shows up like a rushing, mighty wind. And those disciples then leave that upper room. They go out into the streets of Jerusalem where this massive feast is taking place. They begin to speak the gospel in all sorts of languages that people could understand out there because they had come from various places in the world. They're speaking to them in their language the good news of Jesus Christ. The people are saying, what's the matter with these people? They're talking in our language. Are they drunk? And then Peter stands up and begins to preach. He tells the crowd how the Old Testament points to the coming Jesus, how the giving of His Spirit was prophesied in the Old Testament to usher in those last days. He says that Jesus was killed by lawless men and then He was raised from the dead, just as the Old Testament said that He would be raised from the dead. He then ascended to the throne at the right hand of God, and this Jesus, He says, is both Lord and Christ, where he is right now. And then he looks at all of them and he says, oh, by the way, you crucified him. The Lord and Savior, you, you put him to death. You're responsible for this. But he also tells them that in the wise plan of God, his death was payment for their sins. So, even as you sinfully killed Jesus, God was right there providing a sacrifice for your sins. A forgiveness that even covers that sin. Incredible. You killed Jesus. You put him to death. The Lord of life. You had him nailed to the tree. You were there when Pilate was wavering and you screamed out, crucify him. But the God of mercy gave up His Son and had Him killed to cover not just that sin, but every sin you've ever committed. So these first hearers of the Gospel, they knew who Jesus was. They had seen His face. They had heard Him teach. And they had participated in his death. But they are being told by Peter that there is good news even for that sin. Are there sinners in this room? Are you a sinner? Nobody here was present when Jesus was standing before Pilate that day. Now, if you were there, you might have jumped on the bandwagon. You might have started screaming just like they did, but my point is, is if there is forgiveness for that sin, there is forgiveness for whatever you have done. There are people here now who know that they're sinners. Maybe you call it something else. Maybe you've walked in here with a concept of sin. Maybe you call it your flaws. But you know something is messed up deep down inside of you. You're selfish. Your mouth spouts off what it shouldn't. You lie. 
you lust, you covet, you hate. And because you see other people doing those same things, you think to yourself, well, at least I'm in good company. Maybe you find comfort in the fact that you're not alone in that. Don't. You are worthy of God's holy wrath. And you have put yourself in a dangerous position. If you breathed your last right now, you would spend every moment into eternity experiencing the torment of that wrath. And you would deserve every second of it. You have rejected the good that you knew you should do again and again. And your works and your thoughts would testify against you on the day of judgment as you stood before God to the point where you could not open your mouth to say anything in your own defense because everything you have done would be on display. You are guilty. But right now, as you sit in this place, experiencing the patience of God, the kindness of God, you are hearing about a generous Savior who thought of sinners and came for them. He was not content to sit in heaven without a people there with Him. He delighted at the thought of coming and giving His life in their place. He left the glories of heaven and walked alongside the weak and the crippled and the rebellious, people just like me and you. And this gentle servant, he came and died a violent death, experiencing the fullness of God's wrath against your sin. He took that upon himself. It's the torment that you and I would have suffered forever in hell. It was on Jesus at the cross. That's what he did for us. It is a strange love when we think about the love of God. We love people who love us back. We love people who we think are worthy of our love, do we not? If you and I are pretty honest with ourselves, that's what we do. That's what we practice. But God loves sinners who would not love Him back, and He came for them while they were in their sins. That's a strange kind of love that God has. Any sinner who wants to call on God for mercy with a desire to repent of your sin and delight in this Savior, God promises that He will give that mercy. And so I ask this morning, does this describe you? And will you reject the free good news of the gospel. I mean, who would, right? Like, who would, who would do that? It's, like, it's almost as if it's the height of insanity. When you are being told that you don't have to do anything for this, that Jesus has done it all, He has paid the price, that even your faith will be a gift from God, call on Him. Ask for mercy. He promises that His storehouse of grace has not run out. It's always there in Jesus Christ. Just ask. And you will receive new life. 
But so many people, what do they do? They hear that, and they say, well, that's just what you believe. There's all sorts of excuses out there, isn't there? And we simply ask that God would tear down the walls in people's hearts to where they will hear this as the good news that it is. It's almost like a child who would wake up on Christmas morning and their parents have spent all of this time getting the presents ready with great anticipation at that child's face and delight on that day. And the child comes downstairs and the parent says, look at what I've given for you. Look at what I've done. Do you delight in this? And the child turns around and just goes back upstairs. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? Well, in some ways, that is what is happening with the gospel. We need to be a people who genuinely believe that we have good news. That we're not just trying to get it out to people. Like, oh, it's just what we have to do. Do you believe that this is the best news in the world? And if you do you will be delighted to share it with other people. And we hope that they will receive it not as that child who rejected their Christmas presents, but they will receive it as a child who sees the goodness of God in the gospel of His Son. That's what we have been called to do. And that's what Peter says to these first hearers of the gospel, because they're cut to the heart. He tells them, you crucified Jesus and they say, well, what, what do we have to do? What are we supposed to do? Look at there in Acts 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. The promise is for you, He says. And brothers and sisters, the promise is for us. Look at what happened there in verse 41. They did receive His Word. So those who received His Word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Discipleship began right there for 3,000 people as they received the Word. Seed was scattered on the ground. We don't know how many physically heard God's Word that day, but we do know that it fell in 3,000 places where life sprung up. In verse 47, it says, "...the disciples were continuing to be made. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." And so more people heard the gospel and they received it as the good news that it was. And in chapter 4, we start to see the disciples begin to bump up against opposition as they went out there sharing the gospel with people. Look at verses 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word, again, it's the word that is scattered on the ground. God uses his word as powerful. They heard the word and they believed. And the number of men that day came to about 5,000. The church is constantly growing as the people go out and spread the word on the ground. 
Well, the next day, the high priest and his council, they call the disciples to come in for questioning, and they tell them to stop telling other people about Jesus. But in verse 19, we see their response. He says to them, Peter says, whether, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You can tell us all you want to, he says, that we have to close our mouths, but we cannot help but say what we have seen and what we have heard. We saw our Savior die. We saw his resurrected body. And we know that the whole Old Testament points to him to be the Lord and Christ of all people. We must speak. We have to tell them. We have to share this news. Later in chapter 4, we see there's more preaching of Jesus. And so they follow through on what they said. They would not stop speaking about Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 14, we read that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Now it is multitudes of both men and women. Multitudes were added to the number of disciples because of the witness of that early church, again, continuing to scatter seed on the ground. But there is more opposition that comes to them. The high priest, you would expect, now the high priest, people aren't listening to him like they used to be. He begins to get jealous. We're told that he was jealous. He doesn't like that people are turning to Christ. And so he throws Peter and John now in prison. But that night an angel comes and sets them free. And what does that angel tell Peter and John to go and do? He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And what is this life? It's their Savior. Christ is life. And so they walked out of that prison and began to do just what they were told. And so the next day, the people come into the prison. They're looking for the disciples, and the doors are still locked. The, the, the uh, guards have not seen them leave. They're bewildered. What happened? Somebody comes rushing in there and tells them, hey, you'll never guess right now where those men are. They're out there in the temple courts, and they are bringing the message of the gospel again to these people. So they bring them back in. More questioning. Chapter 5, verse 28 they say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And Peter does in that moment what he is compelled to do. He preaches the gospel to the high priest. He now tells him about his Savior. And what do you think happens in that moment? It wasn't belief. It was hate. Hate filled the room, and they want the apostles dead. But instead, they choose to give them a good beating. They give them a good beating. They tell them not to preach Christ anymore, as if they think these men can stop preaching it. So what did the apostles do? This is where I kind of wanted to land right here. I want you to see Acts chapter 5, verse 42. This is what the apostles did. And every day, not once a month, not even once a week, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I read this with a group of guys about six weeks ago, and I was really 
convicted. Every day, these men right here, they knew they had the best news in the world. They went to the temple. And what was the temple? It was the religious center of the people. So all the religious people would come there, maybe even every day, because they were interested or curious in the things of God, or they were very devoted Jewish people who were seeking to follow the Old Testament. These are the religious folks. But the apostles also knew that not everybody was going to go to the temple. So what did they do? It says they went house to house every day. I'm at least fairly comfortable preaching here on Sunday mornings. And why is that? Because my expectation is, is that everybody who comes into these doors is at least interested in the gospel. They're at least interested in the things of God. They've come to hear it, and so we give it. So there is a kind of comfort level that comes with that. But what about out there? I'll admit to you, I am far less comfortable going out there where people who may or may not be interested in these things live. What about you? On their property, in their territory. But I've already said that a Christian is supposed to believe that they have the greatest news in the world. But there are people out there who need to hear it. So here's where all this is going. The new season, the rustling leaves and all that. This fall, we are going to start going house to house with the good news of Jesus Christ. If we do not do it, who do we think will? Who's going to bring the message to our neighbors out here across the creek or right here around the church? Who's going to do that? Without the gospel, if we believe what God's Word says, without the gospel, those people will perish. They will. But we have the words of life. Do you believe that? We've been praying for a revival in this community for a few years. When I say that word revival, I do not mean that we have been praying for a scheduled meeting called a revival. Now when I say that, I mean an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit where suddenly a harvest begins to come in. Unplanned, unexpected, the mighty hand of God sweeps souls into the kingdom as they hear the gospel and believe it. Hardened yesterday, believers today. That's what I'm talking about. Now the chances of that happening may be pretty slim because the, those kind of things, as we know from history, are actually very rare. But I know that when we pray for it, 
We're asking the only source who can get it done. Our God has the power to give us a revival in western New York. Our God has the power to give us revival in the neighborhoods right here where we're going to go. He is able. This is hard ground, brothers and sisters. I was down in Kentucky last couple of weeks, went to a friend of mine's church, and um, while I was there, one of the guys asked me, he said, how would you describe Buffalo? That's what I said to him. It's hard ground. People aren't that receptive here. I know a lot of you all have lived here for a long time. You've just gotten used to it. There are other places where the gospel is a little bit more well-received. It's not here. But just because it is hard ground, that does not mean that we don't ask God to use us to till it up. It doesn't mean that we don't believe that if people hear the gospel, that they won't believe it and receive it, and new life might spring up in their hearts. We're witnesses to that right here, right? I mean, somebody shared the gospel with you. You heard it somewhere. Somebody told you about Jesus Christ and new life sprang up somewhere. And maybe you can't point to an exact moment when that happened in your life, but it happened if you were a believer of Jesus Christ. It was not always that way with you. Life happened somewhere. You received the word that somebody scattered on your heart. And God made you fertile soil to receive it. And He can do that out there. He's able. But revival is rare. And seeing one is a special privilege. I delight. One of my favorite things to read about is revival. And there's a couple of guys out there that write on it historically just well. All sorts of quotes. And I was reading some of that this week, and I was having this conversation with my kids, and I told them this, and I mean this, that if I have one thing in life that I could ever see, it's a genuine revival. Genuine revival. If it's a month, I don't care. Where all of a sudden, all that hard ground is soft. The Word of God is received. People are hungry, climbing all over themselves to hear more of God's Word, delighting in holiness, genuinely worshiping God. Homes and families transformed because of the work of God inside human beings. Now, all I'm saying is that that happens in ones and twos from time to time. A revival means it happens in hundreds where all of a sudden, the normal work of God, He starts to do the extraordinary in more and more people. And so I want that special privilege of just seeing it. Just being a simple field hand who does His part alongside other people who are doing their part, and God shows up like a mighty rushing wind. Oh, I don't think there would be anything better. Let me read to you about a couple of these men who saw such a thing. One man named William McCullough from a town called Cambuslang in Scotland. 
He was witness to the great work of God there in 1742, same time that the um, first great awakening, if you know your history at all, the first great awakening was happening over here in America. Something like it was happening over there in Scotland. And this man saw it in his church. And seven years later in 1749, he was greatly discouraged because he no longer saw sinners coming to the Lord like he had before. He had seen it. He had seen God work with such power. And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And so seven years later, he's like, I want it again. And the greatest evangelist of that time was a man named George Whitfield, who would travel back and forth, England, over to here, multiple times. And Whitfield saw great revival take place before the American Revolution. And this is what Whitfield said to him. He said, I should be glad to hear of a revival at Cambus Lang, but dear sir, you have already seen such things as are seldom seen above once in a century. And why not here? God is able. That man had the special privilege of seeing this take place. And that is what we are praying for. One more quote. Edward Griffin he saw the great revival take place in Newark, New Jersey, and I believe this is in the early 1800s. And so after the American Revolution, when the time frame of when our country was formed, great revivals of God were taking place, which helped shape the beginning of our nation. That's what was happening. Droves of people were hearing the gospel and receiving it before the revolution, and then not long afterwards. So around 1800, the second Great Awakening begins. And that's when this man was witness to it in Newark, New Jersey. This is what he said. The appearance of the revival was as if a collection of waters long suspended over the town had fallen at once and deluged the whole place. He said, it's almost as if waters were suspended above the city. We had been praying and praying, and then all of a sudden, God turned loose those waters, and everyone was drenched. Incredible. Incredible. And so we prayed that the Lord of the harvest would send a deluge like that on this place to give our eyes one time, one season, where we see these people swept in to the kingdom of God. And they need to hear the message of the gospel to turn to Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, we must go. One final illustration. Second week of June, Mike and Betty Wagner came to till up the back lot back here behind the church so I could plant some corn. Just wanted to plant some corn. And it was a Saturday morning. It was during the men's breakfast. And so I walked out of the men's breakfast up here, go out there and see the Wagners. They brought their tiller in. And I just wanted to show Mike where the painted lines on the ground were, where I wanted to plant the corn. And so I thought, I'll just show him that. Then I'm going to go back inside and I'm going to get some bacon. Well, as soon as Mike stuck the tiller in the ground, all these bricks and concrete and rocks, I mean lots of them, started just popping up everywhere. No bacon. So me and Jack and Betty, we started following that thing around the entire time to move rock out of the way. 
But if you've been in the back parking lot any time recently, have you looked back there? There's a patch of corn back there. Ready to be picked. In fact, I took some pictures last night of some men who are out there in the corn patch picking about a hundred ears of corn for us to roast at our picnic today. And so all that is to say is that there is going to be some rock in the ground out there when we go into the field, but that does not stop us from sowing the seed. And who knows? The Lord may choose to bless us with a great harvest. Those disciples, when they came before the high priest, they were accused that day. They said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Man, I would love for it to be said of our church someday. In an accusatory way, even, I don't care. You have filled South Buffalo with your teaching. Well, we would wear that as a badge of honor. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that you have given us, the words of life. And I pray, Father, that this would not just stay in this room, it would not just stay in a sermon, but that we would be a people who take this treasure that you have given to us out into the highways and the byways, into our family rooms, our homes, our own neighborhoods, that we would begin to be a people who fill our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, that you might be pleased. Oh, God, would you be pleased to give us a season of your grace where you would deluge this community with hearts that are receiving Jesus Christ in droves. We will write about it. We will sing about it. We will continue to pray about it. But we will give you praise for it. Lord God, would you be pleased to give us a season like that? Make us faithful. I know these apostles in this book, they prayed for boldness. There had to be some fear in their hearts somewhere. And we admit before you, God, that we are fearful in our hearts to take the message out there because if we weren't, we would be doing it. Nobody has told us to shut up yet, and we still don't take it. Lord God, give us repentance and give us boldness. Give us courage to bring the gospel to people who will perish apart from you. And we ask, God, that you would give souls to this church, that disciples would be made, so that worshipers would be made. Lord, you are the one who can do that, and we pray it all to you in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.